according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Turn with me, if you would, to the Word of God, to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 12. We are learning how to run with endurance the race that's set before us, which means that we have to bind up some broken bones on occasion, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble. And uh, those are the kind of infirmities that will keep you from running a race. And uh, we recognize that in the metaphor, but we also recognize that in the spiritual truth of this chapter that uh, frequently we will trip up. And thankfully, we have brothers and sisters that can come alongside and can be our blessing to, uh, to restore us to the running condition that we need to be in. Before we get started, let's take a moment for silent prayer. Ask our Father's faithfulness to open our eyes. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we come before you this morning thankful for truth, thankful for this day, for the blessing that we have to assemble, and we call upon your faithfulness, Father. Uh, You understand this is a a time of year where sometimes the throat gets congested and the the speaking is rough, but uh, you're in charge of that, Father. So give, uh, give voice for the hour. Feed your children. Bless us all as we assemble together. I thank you, Father, and I praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. This is the time of year where you take uh, some medication, which is useful to keep the throat clear and works great with the sinuses, but then you get a little foggy and lightheaded, and when you're lightheaded, you don't know what you might say (laughs) uh, as it takes hold. So we pray for that too. All right. Well, thank God for discipline. And if you were with us last week, we were looking at these disciplinary passages about uh, being God's children. And it is starting in verse 7. We really covered 7 through 11 last week in a pretty rapid fashion. But it is for discipline that you endure and God deals with you as with sons. And thank God for that. Because if He didn't deal with us as with sons, that means we wouldn't be His sons. We would be still of our father the devil and we would be headed for the lake of fire. And uh, that's not uh, what his plan calls for. And if you are without discipline of which all have become partakers, then you are bastards. You are illegitimate children and not sons. And the language there is brutal. It is blunt, it is direct. And the issues of legitimacy versus illegitimacy that are largely lost in our culture today, the idea of because there's so many 70% of children born out of wedlock and different demographics and things, it is, uh, it is frightening what's happening in our in our culture today. But the distinctions between legitimate and illegitimate, particularly in the principle of heirship and what it means to be an heir and to have an inheritance, a rightful claim upon the inheritance that the father is bestowing upon his legitimate sons is uh, is very important, biblically speaking. And it's important for us in, in uh, the royal family of God, that we are sons of God the Father by faith in Jesus Christ and the blessings that we have here as well. And so we rejoice in the discipline. And it is for discipline that we endure. It is for the sake of learning the lessons that disciplinary instruction is designed to communicate. Because remember, the discipline is instructive. It is punitive, but it is instructive. And so we are trained by it. When we learn uh, at verse 11, all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, when you learn the lesson that discipline is designed to teach, the discipline can stop. You don't have to, no parent has to keep spanking their child when the child has learned the lesson. And when the child's behavior has been adjusted accordingly, when they're no longer doing the the wrong things that merit the, 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 the discipline, well then the parents can stop the discipline. In fact, they should stop the discipline because the lesson has been learned, the, the behavior has been corrected, and, and the content has gone across. So we learn these things. And when we've been trained by it, afterward it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And so we have the blessings of fruit production having endured the discipline and, and being stronger for it on the other side. And I do like the reminder that it's momentary, all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful. And this was one of the principles we gave last week as we were coming to the end of the hour. Um, there we go. 
Discipline is momentary, so view it accordingly. It is momentary. Think about what 2 Corinthians 4 talks about when it talks about momentary light afflictions that are not worthy to be compared to the eternal weight of glory. The, the whole principle of momentary applies to our afflictions, our testing, and even our discipline. It is for the moment. And He's disciplining us for the moment that we might bear fruit for eternity. And uh, we want to view our discipline accordingly. We want to accept the training and reap the eternal fruit. Accept the fact that He's training us by it. Learn what we're supposed to learn. The worst thing we can do is to enter into our discipline in total denial. We can enter in in self-delusion. We can convince ourselves that God's wrong somehow, that we're getting what we don't deserve, or that, that, that we shouldn't be going through this. And if we're in denial about why we're under discipline, then we don't stand a chance of learning what we should be learning. How do you learn what you should be learning when you're in total denial that you should even be in, in the circumstance in the first place? So really the book of Job addresses that and other passages address that. Simply accept it. Accept the discipline. Embrace it. And uh, as we see in Romans 8, it's part of our sonship. We cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And so we have to go through discipline. We have to be perfected. We have to be prepared for uh, the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. Now this gets us to verses 12 and 13, and the application is a therefore. Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble, and make straight paths for your feet, so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. And really what we're doing here in verses 12 and 13 is we're kind of going back and resuming the racing metaphor. We are, the racing metaphor is resumed and concluded by adapting expressions blended from Isaiah and Proverbs. So therefore strengthen the hands that are weak. And this is carrying on that thought of uh, fixing our eyes on Jesus and running, uh, running with endurance the race that's so easily set before us. So we, uh, really when we uh, had a kind of a side trip in verses 3 and following, or you have not resisted to the point of shedding blood, and those, those issues there, when he says you've forgotten the exhortation of sons, and he brings in Proverbs chapter 3 there, really that was kind of a, a departure from the metaphor. He gets back to the metaphor now with uh, the idea of racing. And hands could also be arms, um, the, the uh, upper body appendages and that, but uh, however we take it, clearly... Uh, we've got hands or arms, we've got knees, we've got uh, feet, and uh, something that's lame that has to be, that has to be healed. If, if you're lame, you're not going to finish this race. That's uh, in the metaphor or in the spiritual truth. So uh, we have the procedures here. Now this blending of these verses, I find it curious to me. It's really, it's instructive for us. How do we as church age saints Do we have the opportunity to adapt Old Testament passages for our own application? Given that the Old Testament wasn't written to us, it was written to the Jewish people by Jewish prophets in the Hebrew language, but we do find the applications and we adapt them in our own way. And in so doing, we may take a little bit of here and a little bit of there, put them together theologically, see, and to do so in a way that the Holy Spirit uh, sanctifies, the way that the Holy Spirit uh, sanctions. And, and when Paul does it or when the author of Hebrews does it or any New Testament author does it, I think it's useful for us so that we can appropriately compare Scripture to Scripture in a legitimate way for understanding the whole counsel of the Word of God. And you'll see what I'm talking about here when we kind of blend Isaiah 35 and Proverbs 4. So let's look at those now. Isaiah 35 and Proverbs 4. And in doing this we have to avoid um, artificial phoniness and we have to avoid uh, what um, some people do, what the frauds will do, (laughs) what uh, other folks do. Um, There's a a tendency among the carnal crowd to uh, accomplish what's called cherry picking where you only take a little snippet here because you think it says what you want it to say, and you take another little snippet here because you think it also supports what you want to say. And, and when you're doing the cherry-picking exercise, you're not an interpreter of the Word of God. You're, artif- you're, you're really proclaiming your own views and trying to find snippets to validate your opinions. All right, That's not what we're called to do. And so this procedure of harmonizing Scripture 
This procedure of blending Isaiah with Proverbs, this, this is a legitimate function. And it's not the cherry-picking function of making the Bible say what we want it to say, but it is the legitimate uh, function that the Holy Spirit Himself does when He blends concepts together so that we can apply them in our circumstances today. I hope, I hope that makes sense. So in Isaiah 35, the wilderness, starting with verse 1, the pericope heading might be a clue for you there, is that when it says Zion's happy future, okay? Now that's not God-breathed and inspired, that's an editorial comment inserted by the, the Lockman Foundation when they published the New American Standard Bible. But it is useful as a standard way of understanding this text that it's largely taken to be Zion's happy future, and they're correct on that. So verse 1 says, "...the wilderness and the desert will be glad, and the Arabah will rejoice and blossom like the crocus." Uh, it will... Um, blossom profusely. That crocus is like the Rose of Sharon, by the way. Crocus just doesn't make it to most of the music. But the, uh, <laughs> the crocus just doesn't rhyme with things, you know. But anyway, uh, it will blossom profusely and rejoice with rejoicing and shout of joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Well, that's awesome for Israel in their coming kingdom, for the Jewish people and what they can expect when Messiah comes and reigns. But then, verse 3, encourage the exhausted and strengthen the feeble. Now, you see what's, what the Holy Spirit is doing here. He's taking a little bit of Isaiah, removing it from its messianic context of Israel and the coming millennial kingdom, but still not without denying that that's true or without, you know, he's not rejecting the doctrine from Isaiah 35. But he is drawing it forth as a principle and bringing it into the church for our use. And so he gives it to the Hebrew readers as something that we can apply now. Not because the church is, is entering into the millennium today or anytime soon, but because it's a principle that we edify one another, we encourage one another, that we are a body that's expected to serve one another in this mutually beneficial way. So encourage the exhausted and strengthen the feeble. The Jewish people are going to have to survive tribulation. And that's a whole different run with endurance, the race set before them. But we have our own race set before us that we have to run with endurance. And so the, the exhortation that's fruitful for their benefit is also fruitful for our benefit just in the different context of, of what we have, what we're doing. So does that make sense? All right. Now, the author of Hebrews does not go beyond verse 3. Uh, it's not really wrong for us to go beyond verse 3 just to see a larger sense of what is going on with this. So how do I encourage the exhausted? How do I strengthen the feeble? Well, verse 4 says... Say to those with anxious heart, take courage, fear not. So we might adapt that principle as well. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with re the recompense of God will come, but he will save you. Again, we would want to look at that and say, well, how much of that is applicable in the church age? God is the God of vengeance. Is that true in the church age, the way that he's going to inflict vengeance upon the uh, Antichrist and the forces of evil in the tribulation? Uh, this is where we have to be cautious when we are adapting an Old Testament text for our use in the church. Then you'll notice in verse 5, the eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf will be unstopped, the lame will leap like a deer, the tongue of the mute will shout for joy. And it's curious to me because these are the very Old Testament passages that Jesus cited when he was encouraging John the Baptist in, a, in an episode there that you can read about in, uh, in the Gospels. So taking a text from where it rightly belongs and then drawing a secondary application for other uses, for other settings and other things, there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with that so long as we identify that it's a secondary uh, application at best and we're not denying the primary fulfillment uh, the way that God designed it. Alright, over to Proverbs 4 and verse 26. Proverbs. Chapter 4. Verse 
Of course, uh, a larger context here as well. Um, Talking about walking in wisdom, giving attention to the Word of God, learning from your parents as they raise you up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. He says in verse uh, 23, watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow springs of life. Put away from you a deceitful mouth, put devious speech far from you. Let your eyes look directly ahead. Let your gaze be fixed straight in front of you. Now, in the Proverbs context, this makes sense. And in the Proverbs context, this, uh, this, is, this is great for any believer walking in the truth of the Word of God. But we can also start to see why the Holy Spirit will be drawing from this passage also when he's writing Hebrews chapter 12, talking about fixing your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, and running with endurance the race that's set before you. The similarities of concept as the Holy Spirit is drafting Hebrews 12 would naturally be in, in memory, in, in remembrance of, of not only Isaiah uh, 35 but also Proverbs chapter 4. And so uh, we have the verse there. Verse 26, watch the path of your feet and all your ways will be established. So that's what gets adapted in, uh, in the verse that we have in Hebrews 12. And it gets blended with Isaiah 53. And, and when you're reading it, you can't, you can't pin the Greek on the Septuagint. Uh, it seems to be a free translation from the, from the Hebrew, which the author of Hebrews doesn't usually do. He's usually pretty clear at quoting the Septuagint. But because he's blending these verses, he's blending Isaiah with Proverbs, you do end up with a bit of a free uh, translation as far as that goes. And so we do the same thing. We talk about... Um, he who calls on the Lord will be saved. And we can use that. We can use that in evangelism. We can use that in giving the gospel to, uh, to an unbeliever, even though that's a secondary usage because the original passage there is, again, talking about Israel surviving the tribulation and enduring to the end and, and uh, the, uh, the things that happen there. Job provides another illustration for this encouragement ministry. This is Job chapter 4, verses 3 and 5, about straightening weak knees and, and things there. Job 4, verses 3 and 5. So we, uh, this is very early in the book. We have two chapters where Satan is afflicting Job. We have chapter 3 where Job opens his voice and he begins his lament. And after 20 verses or 26 verses of lamenting in chapter 3, then his associates are going to start ripping into him. <laughs> All right? They waited a chapter at least uh, for, Paul to, for uh, Job to say what he had to say. And then starting here in uh, Job chapter 4, uh, Eliphaz, the first of these three, um, whatever you want to call them, Three stooges, three, uh, I don't know, three blind mice. They're, they're three friends, but some friends they are, right? They're not there to encourage him. They're there to tear him down. They're there to get him. They know he's guilty, and so they're just hoping that they can be the one that wheedles it out of him where he finally admits uh, what it is that, that he's done. So Eliphaz the Temanite answered, If one ventures a word with you, we become impatient. But who can refrain from speaking? Behold, you have admonished many, and you have strengthened weak hands. Now, it's curious to me that this is the language that Eliphaz will use when he starts his rebuke of Job by, you know, crediting him some with what his life, previous life was like, how beneficial he was to others uh, in, in his past before this current affliction. And this is the language now that's used by the Holy Spirit in writing Hebrews 12. You have strengthened weak hands. And how, does he, how has he done that? By admonishment, by the teaching, by the verbal ministrations of God's truth. Your words have helped the tottering to stand, and you have strengthened feeble knees. It's the same metaphor that Hebrews is using. So in other words, this is the blessing we have to communicate truth. And in communicating God's truth, we can edify others in this way. Verse 5 says, But now it has come to you, and you are impatient. It touches you, and you are dismayed. So the shoe's on the other foot, Job, and, 
And now we hear all your crying and all your moaning and all your accusations that uh, you don't deserve any of this. And so then the assum- that, on that assumption then the rhetorical questions that follow are going to be off target because he's not getting what he deserved. He is under undeserved suffering as was revealed in the first two chapters where Satan was afflicting him without cause. So uh, back to our text in Hebrews then uh, these are not first aid instructions when it says make straight uh, paths for your feet that's adapting the Proverbs material so that the limb which is lame may be, not be put out of joint. We're not talking about applying a splint to a broken bone or finding some kind of a, a, a first aid procedure to, uh, to keep something immobilized. Uh, don't lose the metaphor for the reality. The reality is we're running with endurance the race that's set before us and that's a spiritual endeavor. And so when we fall spiritually we do need the spiritual first aid which comes when brothers and sisters come alongside and speak the truth in love. When we communicate God's truth one to another and the blessings of, of encouragement in that way. Now this activity is often entrusted to shepherd to shepherding leadership. But don't think that uh, this is your escape clause that you can just look at this and say, well, that applies to Pastor Bob. I don't have to do that. It applies to everybody, all right? And uh, everyone should be expected to minister to everybody else. And that's an important principle as well. Now, yes, it is the primary functional responsibility of shepherding leadership, no question. And the shepherd who's not doing this comes under the immediate attention of Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is very firm and very clear that uh, when the under-shepherd is not doing what he's supposed to be doing, that Jesus deals with him personally. That, that is, uh, the head of the church has a very personal, hands-on involvement. And in the most blunt of all these passages is Ezekiel 34. It's not even a church-age text. And yet we turn here because the shepherding imperative is so, uh, so clear. Ezekiel 34. Let's see what I'm talking about. Ezekiel 34. The word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. We're going to see he's not talking about literal shepherds with zoological sheep. He's talking about the spiritual leaders of the nation. That would be the king, that would be the tribal elders, that would be the priests, the prophets, that would be anyone in a spiritual capacity over the theocracy that was Old Testament Israel. Prophesy and say to those shepherds, thus says the Lord God, woe. When Yahweh pronounces woe, you don't want to be on the receiving end of that, of that passage. The woe is not a good message. It never is. It means that the recipients are hearing something that, uh, that they need to hear because they're on the wrong track and God is correcting them. Woe, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding themselves, should not the shepherds feed the flock? And so primary imperative is feed the flock. If you're, uh, if you're eating like a king and all fat, dumb, and happy, and the, sh- and the sheep are starving because uh, you're not feeding them anything, what are you really doing? You're not a shepherd as Jesus Christ designed shepherding. Okay? And this is not even a church-age text. We're adapting it in a church-age context because the church reveals shepherds and flocks and we have the same terminology for our application. But this is even given in Old Testament times. We realize what the the theocracy of Israel should have been about. What every tribal prince should have been about. All the clan elders should have been about the shepherding, spiritual shepherding of of their clans and their families and their tribe. Verse 3 says, you eat the fat and clothe yourself with the wool. You slaughter the fat sheep without feeding the flock. Those who are sickly you have not strengthened. The sickly you have not strengthened. This is what Hebrews is adapting. Hebrews is using this kind of language. We're supposed to be strengthening the, the weak and feeble arms and knees and so forth. It's a shepherding function. And those who are sickly you have not strengthened. The diseased you have not healed. The broken you have not bound up. The scattered you have not brought back. Nor have you sought for the lost. But with force and severity you have dominated them. <laughs> and so we see um, in any textbook on shepherding leadership uh, force and severity have no part. 
It's, it's the antithesis of shepherding leadership. Force and severity. That's, ty- that's tyranny. That's a monster. Right? Is that shepherding? Is that true leadership? I mean, does that work in a local church? Does that work in a marriage? Does that work? You know, tell me where that works. If the husband's uh, model is force and severity, you know, dominating, putting the wife under his foot and grinding it and, and you'll do what I say, woman, because I'm the boss. And, and with force and severity, wow. Is that, is that the biblical model of leadership for a marriage, for a family, for a clan, for a nation, for a church? And so we realize that force and severity are not... There, there will be times, and typically the most violent a shepherd ever gets is when he's killing the wolves, when he's defending the sheep. Anyway, um, they were scattered for lack of a shepherd. They became food for every beast of the field and were scattered. My flock wandered through all the mountains on every high hill. He says, it's my flock. You shepherds are shepherding my flock. You're simply under shepherds. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord, verse 7. As I live, declares the Lord God. How powerful is that? As I live. The God who cannot lie is taking a vow and he stakes his own life on it. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely because my flock has become prey, my flock has even become food for all the beasts of the field. He's going he's to take care of them. He says, I am against you. In verse 10, behold, I am against the shepherds. I will demand my sheep from them. But then he goes on to say, I will be their shepherd. I will bring them out. I will bind them up. I will break them uh, or, or bind up the broken. Anyway, read, read through the whole chapter. It's a long chapter, but it's so faithful. Understand that God is the good shepherd, the faithful shepherd. And he takes care of his, uh, of his flock. So we grant that. We grant that while this activity is often entrusted to shepherding leadership, the church as a body has the privilege and responsibility to care for one another. That the exhortation in Hebrews 12 verses 2 and 3 is not limited to the spiritual leadership. He'll, he'll talk about those leaders. He'll tell the readers to obey their leaders. And that comes up in chapter 13. But here in chapter 12, he's not addressing this exhortation to the leadership. He's addressing this exhortation to everybody. We're all running the race. You think the leaders are the only ones running a race? We're all running the race. And since we're all running the race, then uh, we need our fellow runners in proximity to, uh, to pick us up when we trip, to get us back on our feet when we've stumbled. And we have this. In fact, we've seen it already. Earlier, prior to chapter 12, we saw it in chapter 3. We saw it in chapter 10. Remember this? Hebrews 3. Verse 12 says, Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God, but encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sins. It doesn't say pastors encourage your flock. It says encourage one another. The warning is to all of us. And the blessings of encouraging one another is for all of us, every one of us, to encourage one another. Chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. Verse 23 says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. It doesn't tell the leadership to consider how to stimulate their flock. It tells the flock. It tells everybody. Stimulate one another. Because I tell you, you guys stimulate me. It it works. Everybody works in this capacity. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking what I would say rapture doctrine, our episunagoge, as is the habit of some. We taught that. It's, it's such a bigger verse than just quit skipping church, all right? It's a, it's a powerful verse. It says, not forsaking our super assembly in the heavens when Jesus snatches us to heaven, but not forsaking rapture doctrine as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. 
That's a clue right there. You can use rapture doctrine to encourage your brother. Use rapture doctrine to come alongside your sister and say, hey, what are you doing? The trumpet could sound today. Are you in fellowship? And use that. And if, if you've got a, a brother that's got a test that's been lingering for a while and he thinks it's never going to end, let him know, hey, it could, it, it could be over today if that trumpet sounds. This test is gone and done with. And so rapture doctrine, all the more as you see the day drawing near. Each day that passes gets us one day closer. And encourage one another. Mutually, reciprocally. That's not limited to the leadership. That's everybody encouraging one another. Romans 15, 14 addresses this. Paul was confident that they had the growth, they had the maturity able to do this. Able to admonish one another. Now somebody that was just saved this morning, doesn't have a lot of doctrine, hasn't grown any, uh, you know, we would maybe recognize that they're going to have a limited capacity to admonish one another, but guess what? Even a babe that was just saved this morning can humble a believer by speaking the truth simply, by just laying it out there. And in some kind, sometimes God uses out of the mouth of babes He uses to wake up the older believers that have grown complacent and to realize, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> wow. This guy just got saved this morning and he you know, doesn't have a lot of doctrine, but boy, he just hit me upside the head and how about that? He's right. He's absolutely right. But in Romans 15, 14, when he's praising the, the Roman audience, he says, um, concerning you, my brethren, I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, able also to admonish one another. So it's reciprocal, it's one another. And it really, really helps when you know the Word of God and you're living the Word of God and you're built up in the, the fruit of, uh, of, of goodness, as it says here. And we're able to admonish one another. So you think of that there. You know, the more doctrine you have, the more tools you have at your disposal to be able to encourage. If, uh, if you've only memorized one, if the only verse you've ever memorized is Jesus wept, you're going to be very limited in your approach to different testings that your, your friends and family are dealing with. Okay? So I recommend you learn more verses than that. And you get a, a broad spectrum of passages that can come to your mind when, uh, when God has you in this ministry opportunity to be able to encourage a sister, encourage a brother, or, or uh, get them back up on their feet so they can keep running with endurance. And this is why it's so critical. Because if you don't pick him up, who's going to pick you up? Because maybe... Ten feet down the road, it'll be your turn to trip. And had you picked that guy up ten feet ago, he would have been on hand to pick you up now. This is so critical. All right. And don't assume for a moment that, well, you know, they're an older brother. They, they know the doctrine. They'll, they'll, they'll get it. Well, maybe they are older. Maybe they do know the doctrine, but they need to hear it from you. They need that outside voice to kind of snap them into back to what they already know to be true anyway. And you have the, uh, the blessings there. All right. This is where I like to think about uh, <laughs> my favorite Ralph and Dorothy story is um, I'm going to go to Colossians 3.16 next. But my favorite Ralph and Dorothy story is when uh, their son David Paul who's in heaven and Dorothy was reunited with him. What a joy for that to see to see the little boy that died on their dining room table. But, um, but the occasion was when uh, he was five years old and I think he was six when the car hit him and, and, uh, and he died. But um, when he was just a five-year-old or a four-year-old little boy, something like that, uh, he quoted scripture to Ralph and Dorothy in the kitchen while they were um, <laughs> having a heated, you know, a, a passionate husband and wife kind of discussion at elevated levels of, of volume. And, 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 you know, husbands and wives, that happens occasionally and that kind of thing. But so Ralph and Dorothy are, and, and they don't even, to this day they don't even remember what it was about. Because as they were arguing, um, David Paul got in the middle of them and said, uh, said the battle is the Lord's. And you think about, wow, what a profound truth. And it's right out of Scripture, and it's so true, 
And a little four-year-old said that, five-year-old, whatever he was. And uh, at that moment, of course, it's, they snapped and said, wow, we're carnal, we need to confess, and, and, uh, and all of that. So anyway, it's, Ralph tells it better than I do, but it's a, it's, a, it's a neat application of what we're talking about here. So David Paul was fulfilling Hebrews 12, verses 12 and 13. He was making the limbs straight. He was strengthening the feeble knees. And this is what we do when we speak the truth one to another. Colossians 3.16 let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. Is it richly dwelling within us? Or is it just some dusty old thing that we got stored away in a corner somewhere? Is it richly dwelling within us? Is it alive and powerful, living in our souls? With all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And in so many ways, music allows us to do this. And you can write a melody to Scripture or you can uh, communicate a truth through a, through a hymn or through a song. And, it remind, and, uh, and we think about that. It's a blessing. Singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. 1 Thessalonians 5.11 You say, Pastor, this is overkill. You always... You made the point with the first two passages. Why do we need the next five? To make the point over and over and over again and to get to the one that's really my favorite. Okay? This one's kind of interesting. First Thessalonians chapter 5. And uh, it's an admonishment about the, the day of the Lord, the times and the epochs and Looking forward, I mean, there's a lot of scary things in the future when it comes to the tribulation and the Antichrist and Second Advent and things that we don't have to worry about because we're raptured and out of here. And uh, those kind of doctrines are good to review from time to time. And uh, so verse 9, God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with Him that those that have died in Christ, those that are still alive in Christ, all of us are going to be caught up to meet the Lord. And it says, therefore, encourage one another and build up one another just as you also are doing. So it's not just the leadership encouraging the, the, uh, the, the flock. This clergy-laity distinction whereby ministry is one directional, that's insane. We are all encouraging one another, ministering to one another, uh, serving one another, edifying one another. You have both the uh, verb for encouragement and the verb for edification there. And what's curious to me, this is why it's my favorite, is that's verse 11. And look what follows. The, the passage dealing with leadership in verses 12 and following. It says, there we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work live in peace with one another. So the leadership is in the passage in context. It's in verses 12 and 13. It's not in verse 11, whereby everybody is expected to encourage everybody else. Encourage and edify everybody else. So anyway, that's what made this my favorite text, is that you have the, the everybody, mutual, reciprocal duties in verse 11, and then it follows with the attitude towards your uh, church leaders. All right. And so we have that there. How about verse uh, 14? Hebrews 12, 14. Now, after two verses of metaphor, the racing metaphor is, is set aside. The racing metaphor is abandoned for plain and direct admonishments plain and direct admonishments. When we read through the rest of this, 14, 15, 16, 17, uh, we, the author has departed from the racing uh, metaphor. He's just strictly uh, hitting them with, with one thing after another after another. Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. See to it that there be no immoral or godless person like Esau who sold his own birthright for a single meal. 
For you know that even afterwards when he desired to inherit the blessing, he uh, was rejected for he found no place for repentance though he sought for it with tears. All right, so this gets direct, it's blunt. The racing metaphor is abandoned for plain and direct admonishments starting with the epistle recipient's attitude towards all mankind, then their attitude and priorities for one another. Verse 14 is directed towards all mankind. Verses 15 through 17 is directed towards themselves, one another in the local church. So pursue peace with all men. And you can squint, you can look for fine print, you can... uh, you can, uh, you know, you can wish to put a, a footnote in there. You can read it in the Greek. There's no wiggle room. There's no out clause. There's no exceptions. All men is all men. You say, yeah, but. No, there's no yeah, buts. It's all men. And so if, uh, if the, you have somebody in mind that you think is someone you don't want to pursue peace with, um, start there. Because all men is all men. Now you may not be able to, as far as it depends on you though, pursue peace with all men. If, if they're not going to reciprocate, you can't control how they think or how they respond or, or whatnot. But, uh, you know, Donald Trump could uh, apply this towards Nancy Pelosi and Nancy Pelosi could apply this towards Donald Trump. And if the, both of them were humble before the, the Word of God and desired to, desired to pursue peace with one another, it could happen. Do I see it happening? Not in recent days. But this is what we're talking about. Pursue peace with all men. And so the, uh, the command to pursue peace and the privilege that we have because we have been reconciled, that we have, God has already uh, made peace with us. He's already put us in the peace relationship with Him. And so the infinitely holy, we now have peace with the infinitely holy, even though we are experientially sinners. And if God can bring about that kind of peace, if He can place us in a peace relationship with Himself, then what other relationship cannot be reconciled? What other peace is not attainable? See, to me, the infinite proves the lesser when we, uh, when we understand this. All right, so we start with our own peace with all men, and then we have uh, also the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. That's another aspect of this that we've got to go through. I've got 10 minutes remaining to try to unfold this. All right, pursue peace with all men. A pursuit it takes effort. A pursuit means you're running after something. Okay? It's a pursuit. It's not just a watch it go and wave. You're chasing after it. And uh, pursuit takes effort. And, and uh, <laughs> you know, you're tracking down an inmate that's escaped or you're racing after him or, or what have you if you're uh, a street patrolman and, and the suspect takes off running and you're taking off after him and different things. And, and the pursuit. And I remember... Uh, my first ever high-speed pursuit was a thrill. The first time I ever got to hit the lights and the sirens, I was just waiting, I was just waiting. I mean, I'd been an MP for six months and I'd never yet had one. And like, how long does this take? And then finally I got one. And uh, we were pulling this guy over and the guy ran and, and I looked over to the sergeant and he just kind of smiled and I knew that was my signal. So on go the whoopee lights and we were down. And, I, and when it was over, I never wanted to do another one ever again. Because it was just, I mean, the adrenaline rush finally dumps and then, then there comes the, the letdown and oh wow, we lived through that. And you think, I don't want to do another one of those ever again. But a pursuit is a chase and it requires effort and, and, uh, and so put the effort into making peace, we would say. Uh, Mark 9.50, does Jesus address this? Mark 9.50 The metaphor is salt. Salt is good. But if the salt becomes unsalty, with what will it become salty again? Have salt in yourselves. And then he goes, and be at peace with one another. Now this harmony amongst yourselves is going to ruin your salt capacity for as a preservative in your context. Be at peace 
with one another. That's not a suggestion. That's the command from our Lord and our Savior. Be at peace with one another. Romans 12, 18. Romans chapter 12. This whole section here is corporate in its application. How do we identify with one another? How do we serve one another? It's all about unhypocritical love, starting with verse 9, and the mutual reciprocal devotion in verse 10. Be devoted to one another in Philadelphia. Brotherly love, give preference to one another in honor. The whole paragraph is talking about how do we function as a body, as a church body. Bless those who persecute you within the body. We're not talking about the rascals outside. We're talking about persecution that happens here. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. And if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. And this, uh, you know, I think it says it all because, you know, there may not be, it may not be possible from the other side of things. You can't control the other person and what they think or what they say or what their attitude is. And it may be that hell will freeze over before they ever repent and change their, their attitude. But that doesn't change our attitude. See, we should have the, the willingness to reconcile, the willingness to be at peace. For my part, the willingness to be at peace. And, uh, and the issues there. And this, this happens. This happens in congregations. This happens in churches. This happens with you know, former folks that have departed. And, and are, would they be welcome to come back? Of course they'd be welcome to come back. And uh, on my part, you know, who, who would not be welcome to come back? I want to make sure that my attitude is proper towards anyone that's gone forth. And, and uh, even the ones that I've asked to leave because there were reasons and if those reasons are remedied, they'd be very welcome to come back. So far as it depends on you to be at peace with one another. Uh, chapter 14 and verse 19. So then we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. It's, it's uh, productive and it's edifying. Do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. We're supposed to be building one another up. The edification business is constructive, not destructive. <laughs> and we just we do the opposite, right? We, when we get carnal and we, we don't pursue peace and we instead we put little wedges in there and we dig the knife in a little bit deeper or whatever, wrong. What are we doing that for? That's not edifying. That doesn't build up anybody. All it does is destroy. That makes us tools in the hands of the adversary at that point because we're destroying, we're tearing down. Do not tear down the work of God for the sake of anything. Any issue that has become a stumbling block between two brothers. It might be food, might be alcohol, might be whatever. Whatever the issue is. <coughs> so pursue peace with all men. Also, pursue sanctification. <coughs> the essential sanctification for eternal life. It is essential. Without this sanctification, you don't see the Lord. Pursue the essential sanctification for eternal life. And uh, which means um, we want to be gospel-minded. We want to be giving the gospel every chance we get. And if the person is already saved, then we want to pursue that experiential sanctification because they may have eternal life, but they're not living the life of eternal life. We're going to pursue this essential sanctification that is being saved by grace through faith and walking that way. Walking that way. And we pursue this as well. And, uh, you know, part of loving your enemies and praying for those that persecute you, what an opportunity. If, uh, if that thorn in your flesh, if that adversary that seems delighted in making your life miserable, um, wouldn't it be great if they got saved? And you spend all these hours plotting their downfall and, and scheming for your own revenge and trying to figure out how, to, especially in the workplace where 
the whole dog-eat-dog thing tends to reign supreme. Well, instead of plotting their downfall, how about if you evangelize and, and pray for their salvation? And it uh, seems to me like if they got saved and got on doctrine and started growing, that uh, I suspect their behavior would be different and, uh, and that their tormenting of you would, would be short-lived. And who knows? You may end up with the best friend you've ever had in your entire life that used to be your worst enemy. What a, what a joy what would that turn into be, see? So uh, sanctification's already been mentioned in this chapter, back to verse 10, about being holy and uh, the God who called us in His holiness. Uh, we'll have to pick up on this next week and, uh, and then move on to verses 15, 16, 17. I kind of thought we might get all the way through 17 today, but it is Communion Sunday and those tend to go short. But the, um, the idea of sanctification, the idea of being set apart without which no one will see the Lord, the only essential sanctification that guarantees whether we see the Lord or not, that essential sanctification is the sanctification of our, of our salvation, that we get saved by grace through faith. And that on that basis, on that basis, who can you not have fellowship with? If I'm a sinner saved by grace and they're a sinner saved by grace, what's the problem? Okay, can we not pursue peace with one another? Can we not pursue peace with them? And if they're not saved yet, then we were pursuing both. We're pursuing the peace and their salvation. How about that? And this is why we have the twin uh, imperatives here from verse 14. The two things we're told to pursue. Peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. Father, I thank you for this truth. I thank you for these admonishments. And the good admonishments for us as well, Father. The original recipients were in danger of uh, abandoning uh, New Testament Christianity and returning back to their Levitical roots, returning back to their Old Testament theological priesthood. And uh, what a sad thing to fall back to. But we all have things to fall back to. Every one of us, Father, has vomit we can return to and uh, or a, a, a mire as the sow returns to the mire. So Father, uh, we, we identify that, uh, that this is a snare for every believer in the church age, that if we get our eyes off the Lord, if we stop running with endurance, that we can uh, stumble in uh, unbelief, that we can stumble in, uh, in uh, falling short of, uh, of, you, of your glory. So Father, I pray that we understand how we can encourage one another and simply speak the truth in love, how we can use uh, the words of your truth to bind up the broken, to heal the sick, to bring back the lost, how we can fulfill these duties so that when, uh, when our brothers and sisters stumble in the race, we can get them back up on their feet again and run in some more. And we're running right alongside with them, Father. So when we stumble, they can pick us up too. I thank you for that. Father, uh, thank you for this text. It's, uh, it's been so powerful through these 12 chapters. We're looking forward to what remains of this chapter and the next. Thank you for uh, bringing our flock through the book of Hebrews. Uh, Thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.